This is Chrysalis. Part 6 My assault soldiers traversed desolate landscapes, passing by the ruined skeletons of trees and collapsed buildings alike, their footsteps crunching uneven piles of rubble, debris and concrete. I had squadrons marching through every one of the planet's many small towns, searching, scanning, sending their data to my main body in orbit. They were escorted from the air by a fleet of drones, flying through the thick grey clouds of radioactive dust that now covered the entire world's atmosphere. The Zanvirian bodies were not in underground refuges. In fact, I hadn't found any of those so far. No. They were in the open, scattered, flung about by the hurricane-level winds caused by my detonating 3,071 thermonuclear warheads all over the planet. In parts of the main city, the destruction had been so severe that you couldn't distinguish a leveled building from a gutted avenue. I had to refer to the maps I made from orbit in order to direct my army to the most useful locations. All things considered, though, the damage I had dealt to this planet was still less than what the Zanvirians had unleashed on Earth. Albeit irradiated, this planet still had oceans, for one. You could call my actions merciful by comparison. Or maybe it was a matter of time. Maybe in a few years, temperatures here would crash, causing the ocean water to freeze and recede, ushering in a nuclear winter. It was an interesting thought. One worth verifying, so I separated a few drones and charged them to stay as permanent orbiting satellites, monitoring this world's future evolution. A monument. I had once wanted to build a monument to humanity, something more than the paltry pyramid I had erected in southwestern Africa before departing my homeland. A monument rooted in my survival and revenge. It was important to me I felt a deep-seated urge to fight, to rebel against the idea of time ticking by, of the last memories of our species being abandoned as the galaxy spun, of having been nothing, amounting to nothing but some irrelevant blip in someone else's history, fighting not to be forgotten. This, this destruction, this ruin, it was retribution, yes, it was vengeance, but it was so much more. It was also a remembrance. It was our cry of pain, defiance and fury. A cry so high and strong that cities crumbled and worlds died under it. An echo that would linger for millennia. A cry that they couldn't help but listen to. That nobody could pretend to ignore. Yes, they would fear me for this. They would hate me, maybe even manage to kill me, but they wouldn't ever forget me. This, right here, this smoldering planet was my monument. Here and there some survivors would try to fight my robotic soldiers. A lone Zanvirian making a suicidal attack, a band of them carrying out a better planned tactic from distance. They would shoot at the machines using energy handguns or throw homemade explosives at them, and they would manage to disable or destroy a few. But invariably they would lose. 
They would be overwhelmed by the assault of nearby robots or ambushed in the low visibility that I easily navigated from above. They would go down quickly and easily. I wasn't exactly sure how to feel about all this. This destruction. I had expected to feel content. Somewhere between happy and nonchalant. But that's not how I felt at all. I felt only detachment. An emotional indifference as I systematically erased the remaining menaces. As if I were crossing off the items in my task list. Just something that had to be done. Me being the appropriate the only one fit for the job. It was that stillness that annoyed me, that frustrated me to no end. Had I felt gleeful or regretful, it would have meant I was still human on some important level. But this, this lack of emotion, I didn't know how to process it. Was it a human way of compartmentalizing trauma? Or was it a sign of my descent into becoming something else? All in all, my casualties were low, especially considering the dangerous environment, with its shifting piles of rubble, sudden gas explosions, and hidden sinkholes. When they weren't fighting, my soldiers shuffled through the remains looking for useful materials, artifacts, and working technology. This was a rare opportunity for me. Over the past weeks, I had learned much about the species I was fighting by examining the ships and facilities I had conquered. I had used that knowledge to devise counters to their attacks and to develop more resistant armor, better propulsion, and newer weapons. But right here, now, I was learning about the Zanvirians as a community. I learned as I picked through the ruins, going through their homes, farms, factories, and administrative buildings. This painted a much richer picture of the enemy I was fighting, and my processing units raced to incorporate each piece of new information to give it sense, contextualize and categorize it, and look for ways in which it could be utilized. I discovered that their society was internally segregated, different buildings and homes sporting banners and identifying symbols of varying colors. I wasn't sure what that division represented, but maybe I would be able to exploit it in the future. Perhaps I could get them to betray one another for my own gain. The spaceport and its large cargo starships told a story of logistics, of interstellar supply runs and resource distribution. A story that already had me shuffling objectives in my mind, reprioritizing possible targets to achieve deepest impact in the Zunvir Republic's trade and military supply chains. It was near the spaceport where I found it. A relatively small spaceship lodged between two buildings as if it had fallen from the sky. Its entire rear was missing, the internal mechanisms, pipes and corridors all exposed to the dusty wind. But what piqued my curiosity was that it didn't look Zanvirian. As a mass producer of spacecraft myself, I had begun to show some appreciation towards the Zanvirian's manufacturing techniques, their spaceships appeared to be constructed by joining smaller, prefabricated modules, many of which were the same across all types of spacecraft in their fleet. This gave way to an aesthetic of straight lines and odd angles. The premium placed on versatility sacrificed any practicality, which probably made it easier for my soldiers to board. But it was the clever bulk production of those modules that reduced costs and simplified assembly. 
The downed craft in front of my soldiers didn't look anything like that. This one had been purposely built as a whole. Its aerodynamic shape had been designed to look good, to be elegant and stylized, rather than utilitarian. With the help of a drone, I had three of my soldiers climb into the vehicle through its gaping hole. They advanced along the dark corridors, using infrared cameras to see. The ship had rolled over, so they were walking on the corridor's ceiling. I maneuvered them slowly and with caution, making sure they wouldn't step on any ventilation grills or exposed pipes and wires. I noticed that the corridor's walls also lacked the perennial hieroglyphic motifs that I had learned to associate with Zanvirian decor. No, these were surprisingly minimalistic, simple designs etched here and there. It reaffirmed my first hunch that this was a foreign ship. I was already cataloguing the most interesting pieces of technology to recover. Sadly, the thrusters, warp drive and shield projector were all missing. I assumed they were with the aft end of the vehicle, wherever that was. But there were still many other devices I wanted to study, such as the intricate quantum relay communicator, which appeared to be of a more advanced design than the ones I was currently using. I had two of the soldiers start to disassemble it while the third kept exploring the craft, moving towards the front. That was when I found the two creatures huddled in the cockpit. One reminded me of a short-snouted fox, covered in brown fur and with large pointy ears, although without any tail that I could see. It was evidently a pilot, sitting behind the controls, hunched over with pain. It looked like it was gravely hurt, its clothes covered in blood, and it was conscious. The other, a bipedal with smooth silvery skin and graceful lines, stood right between my soldier and the other hurt alien, aiming an energy handgun at my robot's head. He didn't look like he had ever been in a firefight, with his aim wavering and his body twitching. His face sported a red gash, and his left arm hung, useless. He was also covered in blood. I considered my options while the silver creature pronounced words in a language I didn't understand. I could order the robot to attack, of course. The alien would shoot at its head, but that wouldn't incapacitate the machine, only destroy its cameras. The radio transmitter and control unit were both safe in the chest, so even when blind it could still receive orders to charge and tear. This was something many Zanvirian troops had learned the hard way. I had the other two robots in the ship stop their salvaging and move toward the cockpit. I could just have them enter guns blazing. The alien might be able to down one of the soldiers if he was fast, but that would be it. Or maybe I could use a drone, order one of the flying machines to shoot or crash into the downed ship. It would destroy the whole cockpit, erase the problem. A bit too excessive, perhaps, and it risked damaging the components I wanted to save. But there was something more. I didn't want to kill them. Oh, I wanted them to be gone. I wanted them to have died in the crash, maybe. It was the idea of shooting them that irked me. Deep down, I had always known that in following the path of revenge, I risked turning into something else. That if the stars were the place where monsters lived, it would be so easy for me to become a monster. And looking at the ruined planet, perhaps I had already crossed that line.
But there had been a reason for that. I hadn't started this war. The Zunvirians had. I was merely taking it to their turf, bringing them the same level of destruction, the same level of pain they had previously brought upon us, on humanity. It felt righteous, like I was working towards some sort of balance, a state of equilibrium. I was following the laws of physics, action and reaction. This, though? Shooting? No. Executing these aliens I knew nothing about would feel awfully close to starting a new conflict, a new war. I would be the aggressor here, even if I suspected that they were collaborating with the Zanvirians. Should I treat them as the enemies they probably were, or as the allies they might be? I could capture them for interrogation instead. But was that not an act of aggression? A lesser one, true, but still unwarranted if they happened to be innocent. Besides, something about taking prisoners felt wrong. I didn't really need them. I could retrieve any information I wanted about their technology from the devices I had found and the ship itself. No, capturing them would only be a stalling tactic. It didn't solve the fundamental decision I had to make, whether to consider them enemies or not. If they were enemies, then I should kill them. If they weren't, then the right action was to let them go. As my mental debate raged, I almost wished the silver creature would open fire, declaring his secret allegiance. Then I would be justified. Then I would be perfectly fine with my machines butchering them. But of course he didn't. He just stood there, spewing words. Ronkas! Ronkas! Like some sort of auditory mirroring of the radio message the Zunvirian ships often sent me. Annoying. The thing was, I had never given much thought of what would happen after. After the war ended, after the Zunvirians were eliminated, after my main goal had been accomplished. I always assumed that achieving my objective would require a complete sacrifice. But what if I was wrong? If I were to go on living, I would need to find inner peace and a new purpose. And if that were the case, then I would have to coexist somehow in this galaxy with these other species. They would see me as an aberration, a freakish mechanical horror, and I would always look at them with suspicion, knowing they had tacitly supported the ones who killed humanity, that they had enabled our destruction even if it had been just through their passivity. If I truly believed in justice above all, if I truly believed that my own cause was righteous, then I had to consider them innocent, until proven guilty. You look tired. I take it the caffeine, toothpaste, and adrenaline face serum aren't working? Well, maybe you should ask Santa for a Nectar mattress this year. And if the big guy brings you another unicorn finger puppet, don't worry, because mattresses start at just $499, and you get $399 in accessories thrown in, as well as a 365-night home trial and a forever warranty. Go to Nectarsleep.com today. In 60 minutes, you can fulfill your alcohol orders through Drizzly, the number one app for alcohol delivery. With Drizzly... You can easily browse your favorite brands, compare prices of local stores, 
and then have your necessary spirit supplies delivered, just in time to craft your next chrysalis cocktail. Download the app or visit DRIZLY.com today. Use code DUST and save $5 on your first order. An olive branch, then. Either that, or wage war against the entire universe. Slowly, I had my soldiers drop their weapons to the floor. It was symbolic, of course. The creature's eyes rattled off a blink, his surprise evident even to me. But he seemed to perceive my intent, and hesitantly placed down his own handgun. I ordered my leftmost soldier to enter the cockpit and approach the fallen fox-like creature, its movements slow and deliberate, each motion exaggerated so as not to scare the aliens. The silver-skinned creature eyed the soldier warily, but didn't try to stop it. I had the robot offer a hand to the hurt creature. It asked something to its partner, which seemed to reply in the affirmative. Then the creature grasped my hand. Strange to feel that sort of contact again. Something I had almost forgotten, even if it was through the very limited haptic senses of my assault robot's hands. I helped it stand. The creature let out a groan, and the silvery alien started moving towards the gun. For an instant, it looked like this candle of a truce we had managed to light was flickering out. But then, the pilot said something, and its partner visibly relaxed. My robot started walking towards the cockpit's exit, escorting the hobbled creature along the way. The other alien eyed the gun again in indecision, but then eventually followed them, leaving it behind. I had my two other soldiers take up the group's rear. Getting the pair of aliens out of the crashed ship was a complex operation that took the better part of an hour. It involved a chain of assault soldiers working in conjunction, along with the support of three of my flying drones. At points, I was worried the hurt creature wouldn't make it. I had a couple of robot squads comb the local area for Zunvirian first aid supplies. When I finally got them out of the wreckage and into the open, the silver creature looked shocked. He stared at the devastated landscape in silence, then pushed my closest soldier in the chest while screaming some unknown word over and over again. My soldier didn't budge. I wanted to say something, even though I wasn't sure what, but I hadn't designed my assault army with the capacity for speech. I'd never intended to negotiate with the Zanvir Republic. So the muted machines just stared at him, frozen. At last, he shook his head in a very human-looking display of defeat and walked up to his partner. I had a drone land next to them and drop the medical supplies I had managed to scavenge. This was as far as I could go. I wasn't a medic, didn't know anything about the aliens' physiology or how to heal them. Surprisingly, the silver creature looked as confused as I was. But the fox-like pilot seemed more knowledgeable and started administering instructions to its partner, who got to work cleaning the wounds, applying gels and wrapping bandages. Meanwhile, I had my troops clear a pathway from the crashed ship all the way to the remains of the spaceport. 
I knew there was no point in saving the creatures just to abandon them in this dilapidated, ruined world. They wouldn't survive long, not in their condition. If this was my attempt at peace with other civilizations, it would be incomplete without the rescued creatures' escape and safe return home, bearing messages of my kindness. But if they were to leave the planet, they would need a vehicle. I knew my own drones weren't up to the task. Even though many had carrying compartments of their own, they didn't have any life support systems on board. I had to find another way. Most, if not all, of the Zunvirian ships parked at the spaceport had been damaged. But they hadn't all been damaged in the same places, and the modules they were built from had originally been designed to be interchangeable. So I set out to assemble my very own Zunvirian vessel out of the surviving pieces from three different ships. It wasn't easy. Even the surviving modules had damages of their own, with bent pipes and burnt surfaces. I was using a small patrol ship as the main chassis, since it had survived relatively intact and only needed some of its main components replaced. A fleet of drones were working on it, welding beams together, rebuilding its life support system, and attaching a new power plant and engine block that I had extracted from nearby freight transport crafts. Was this too much work to save these two creatures, who had done nothing for me, and who were probably accomplices to my enemy? Perhaps. But that olive branch I had wanted to offer had to be delivered. When the medical treatment was over, I set them to move. It took some gentle pushing for them to get the message, and one of my robots had to carry the hurt one, like an injured child. The silver creature startled at first when that happened, but after a few words from his companion, he allowed it. The procession advanced slowly; it had to. It took them almost three hours to reach the spaceport, and by that time, the makeshift spaceship I had assembled was ready to fly. When the creatures saw the contraption for the first time, they stood frozen, exchanging words in their own language. I could see that they were uncomfortable. It made sense, seeing that I constructed the craft in such a short time. The silver creature looked at me, at one of the soldiers. He said something and waited, maybe expecting some kind of response. I had the machine point at them, the spaceship, and the sky in quick succession. His head bobbed slightly. Was that a nod? Something else entirely? The robot repeated the sequence of hand signs: them, ship, sky, them, ship, sky. This time, the strange being didn't say anything. It just helped its wounded partner get into the ship. After a few minutes of waiting. The vehicle's engine started, and the craft began moving. I watched the vehicle from a safe distance with my drones. It didn't leave the planet straight away, as I had anticipated. Instead, it flew over the ruined city, making lazy circles around a particular set of ruins, as if searching for something. Curious, I consulted the map I had made from orbit. It was the place where one of the city's largest buildings had stood. Some sort of administrative facility, I guessed. Maybe a command center. Were they looking for some artifact, some critical weapon to use against me? I didn't know, but whatever it was, I didn't think it would be smart to let them have it. I had been generous enough. I sent a couple of my drones and had them fly in formation, 
one to each side of their ship, forcing them to stay on course if they didn't want to crash into one of them. The aliens seemed to get the message and abandoned their search, accelerating to leave the atmosphere. For a fleeting moment, I considered shooting them down. It would be so easy. Just have one of the drone's vector thrusters align 15 degrees off course. The drone would crash into the ship's engine, disintegrating the craft upon impact. So easy. It would only require a thought. All that time I had been helping them, I was working within the safety of knowing that my decision was reversible, that should I change my mind, I could kill them at any moment I chose. Up until this moment, this was the point of no return. If I let them leave now, I wouldn't have any way to retract that decision. I would be committing to it, to that vague and dangerous idea of coexistence. I didn't do anything, and watched with 10,000 eyes as their ship engaged its warp drive and slipped out of normal space, out of my reach. An olive branch. I wasn't a monster, not yet. I started the preparations for my next move, and which system I would attack next. That was part six of Chrysalis, performed by Corey Hawkins, Matthew Wolfe, and Amy Argyle, directed by Alex Kemp. Chrysalis was written by S.H. Serrano and adapted by Stephen Michael and Macklin Malogi. Chrysalis is executive produced by Corey Hawkins, executive produced by Stephen Michael, and associate produced by Sarah Newton at Gunpowder and Sky. This season is produced by Toby Lawless at Wolf at the Doors Studios.